Welcome to a, another episode of Consider This Distant Style. I'll face this way. You face that way for everyone's safety. Um, we haven't been in the, the studio for a while. We're actually not even in the studio now. We're in the, uh, the sanctuary here. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to, um, we we're going to call this Fishbowl Texts. Kind of like a short edition of what we do normally. Fishbowl exegesis. Fishbowl exegesis, but I, Petco was out of fishbowls. So, <laughs> but Ross had this mason jar. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Petco had no fishbowls. They had large fish had large tanks. Aquariums. Yeah, but no fishbowls. It would just That's be really weird to pull out like a hundred-gallon aquarium to pull out like a little <laughs> slip of paper it would be just a little yeah. bit cumbersome. So it wasn't the, the sizes weren't manageable. So. I went next door to Ross and I found this little mason jar. So maybe this is just going to be like mason jar mysteries or something. Oh, I like that. Okay. I like that. So the idea being that we're going to um, pull a, all these little pieces of paper have texts written on them. Hey, look, my mic has a hat. <laughs> Your mic has a hat. Jim, Jim wants you all to know that he wears a mask. No, Let's I just thought get that, that out there. Kinda, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Starting off strong today. Yes, yeah. we, we are rusty, guys. Um, so we have you're text rusty. in here. I feel like I'm on. You're, you're on fire. <laughs> we have text in here. I know these uh, what these texts are, and these guys do not. And so the idea being, we're going to pull one out, and uh, and we're just going to discuss it. Um, we were all trained. John three sixteen. John three sixteen. Can we play it one might game? Be in there. Can we play one game real quick? Can we guess? Try to guess one of your texts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Nah, I don't think that's in there. Hmm. Second Thessalonians 2. I don't think that's in there. Not that it won't be. We'll have to replenish yeah. these. John 3.16. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, so the, the texts that I've picked, have, they, they vary. They, are, they vary in length, um, but they also vary in obscurity. Some of them are weird stories. Some of them are really important mm. doctrinally. Um, some of them are difficult to interpret, and um, what we're going to do is I- I'm calling this something of an audible observation sheet. So the way that we were trained to interpret Scripture in preparation for preaching and teaching and the way that we all continue to do it well into our ministries, well into our ministries, is uh, we print out the text that we're going to be teaching or preaching and do so double-spaced with lots of room around it. And we just go through, before we get to commentaries or anything else, and we just see what stands out in this text, find patterns, and see what the text itself gives us before we go and consult other sources. And that's something of what this is going to be. Um, So we'll discuss... um, So we're doing like an observational worksheet perusal of some interesting texts. Yes. Cool. Yes. And so things we could discuss would be um, questions that we might have about this text as we look at it initially, um, implications this text might obviously have for life as a, as a believer today, and obviously we're going to also have to give some backstory to some of these texts because context is such an important part of how we interpret properly. So the nice thing is we're going to do this on the fly, and it's not a, a game of stump the chump. Sure, I mean, these people sure. are, are very biblically literate and are going to be able to find the passage, likely without having to go to the table of contents, <laughs> and, uh, and be able to kind of make some thoughtful observations. And if we, if we get through it quickly, we'll, we'll grab another one, and we'll just kind of go. So a little bit of what I, I guess you're asking our viewers, listeners to do is to pay attention to our methodology. Yes. Because in the way that we do this, 
it might be a good idea yeah. for you to consider it uh, I, a, a similar approach to a text. The idea is kind of without, you know, without without a bunch of commentaries in front of us, how do we, for the first time, kind of open yeah, up a text and start right. to dig into it? I like it. So. With, a, with nothing but a Bible or millions of books on Justin's computer. <laughs> He's not cheating. I will not touch a commentary, <laughs> I promise. Um, okay, so we're going to open up. Let's see. We get here first. I'm just gonna say, as he's doing this, I, I've been excited about this all week, and then like when we started walking in, I've been, I started getting nervous. You're sweating. Been, like, you are sweating a I've little bit. I've been nervous for like the last <laughs> think, ten minutes. Well, he minutes. left it in my in my office, or he was gonna leave it in my office, or something like that. And he's like, I don't want to tempt you. And I said, I really actually don't want to know. Yeah. Like yeah. I wouldn't even be tempted because I'm excited about. Okay, so here's the first one, and this is not an obscure one. This is a very important one. Acts two thirty eight. Oh wow. Okay. So. Turn to Acts 2.38, and let us begin to offer up some initial thoughts, observations, and maybe we can even just begin with, why do you agree with me when I say this just happens to be a really important text? Well, it certainly is for our, uh, our tradition within Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, who wants to start us off here with some... Who wants to read it? Read it? Read yeah. it. Yeah. I'll read it. Uh... Do you want me to read context or just the just the? Yeah, the give verse? us give us what's happened in the in the beginning of two, and then okay. maybe start reading at thirty-seven. So this is out of Acts two. This is Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost, preaching out there in the courts in Jerusalem, and a, ca- a crowd gathers around as he begins to explain to them uh, the events that are happening as the church is beginning to go out and preach the the. Uh, preach the gospel in all these languages and different tongues, and uh, and people are asking what it is, and he explains this is the sending of the Spirit that was promised in the Scriptures, and this is a result of uh, Jesus's death and resurrection, which proves that he was the Messiah, and uh, and though he was the Messiah, you missed it and you crucified him, but that was God's will, and he's been he's been raised back from the grave, and so as he kind of wraps that up, uh, it says in verse thirty seven. Uh, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And here's 238. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That was 39 that I just ended with. So I think it's good that you read seven, 37 and 39. Yeah, because yeah. Because they really, that four in 30, and 39 really is, I think, important too. Yeah. So. so what are some of the, the questions that are attached to this verse? Namely, as it relates to baptism and the call to repentance. Yeah, I think I think one of the things, and I and I can't not borrow from ideas that I've already had regarding this text, but I think it's important for us to see this within the Book of Acts as um, part of a number of times in which the gospel has either been presented or has been heard, and then there is a response. So I would want to uh, take this and put it alongside other times or places in which people have heard and are responding to the gospel. Yeah. Uh, let me, I'm going to 
throw one thing real quick that I just noticed. I want to walk back into 36 and see the words that he said right yeah. before. Yep. It says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So Jesus is Messiah and you crucified him. Um, here's one of the first things I noticed um, is it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said, what should we do? And it's interesting, Peter's first word out of his mouth is repent, uh, where we would, I think, I think a lot of people today would say they already did. It said they were pierced to the heart. Yeah. yeah. Um, because to us, repent means feel bad yeah. about something. Feel guilty. Yep. Feel guilty. And it says they felt, I mean, technically they, they were cut to the heart. They felt convicted about what they had done and about who this was. And yet uh, Peter says, and now that you feel that, now it's time to repent, um, which means those are two different things, yeah. feeling, feeling bad about something or feeling a conviction about something, and then choosing to repent, literally changing your mindset and therefore your actions is a different thing than feeling bad. That's one of the first things That's I noticed. Great observation. That's good. There's a That's connection. Good. I mean, these are the, Peter says it, these are the same people who 50 days prior, whoever, however long prior, were standing in a similar type crowd saying crucify him crucify him mm-hmm. not saying everyone there was all back there in jerusalem for the previous feast the passover but they were there and so there's this connection to the event but there's also this connection within what they believe and hold to be most dear being cut to the heart isn't something that just happens to everyone i could read that text Acts chapter 2 to somebody in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and they would say, yeah, and so, like, why do I care about that? Yeah. What's, what's, what is there that would be piercing to the heart? So there's something about who they are, what they truly believe, and their passions, what they worship, that they're now making a connection that was not there weeks before. And so there's something happening in this moment, and what is that thing that's happening? What's the yeah. connecting piece? Yeah. What's what's new to them? Peter the identifies message? a general depravity, but he also connects it to a very specific complicity with with what happened uh, at, at yes. Passion Friday. So that's the that's the big question I'd have. What's new? Good what's Friday. changed from when they uh, were saying crucify him to you crucified him, and now there's a different response. Anything else you guys want to say, or do you want to go to the next text? Um. Go ahead, Drew. You, uh, you, I, mean, I think we got. I think we got to talk on it a little yeah. bit. Um, yeah. Go. So, you know, we always talk about uh, the. Uh, I don't know which one. I'll, I'll start back from this. The restoration movement, or the tradition that we're from, likes this passage because we've always placed a high emphasis on baptism. Um, this is a big one for us. When someone hears the gospel and they are convicted of it, and they ask, "How should I respond to this?" In the first major message of the church, the first major message that kind of the birth of the church in this moment, the first time the gospel is proclaimed after Jesus' death and resurrection, and people ask, how should I respond, repent and be baptized, are mentioned there. And so we from there, it's, we from there see that that seems to be a big emphasis, and this pattern continues in, mm-hmm. in Acts. When someone hears the gospel and they go, what do I do? Uh, they get baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch in 8, um, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Uh, over and over again, we, we see this, this happen, and so we place a heavy emphasis on this. Um, people who struggle with that idea um, 
are people who are seeking to, and I believe usually from a good heart, seeking to protect the idea that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Mm-hmm. And, and they see baptism as an act or a work that I do. And so if I say that they're not necessarily anti, no one should ever be baptized, sure. but they don't like the idea that baptism is one of my, if not my first response towards these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll, they'll use this phrase, baptism should not be tied directly to, and if they're not, if they're not being intentional, they'll say salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what they, I think they mean is justification. Yeah, but they really don't want baptism tied to an act that must be done in order to be justified. Yes, and so I think that's what they're wrestling with. Yes, they yes. love to bring up the yeah, but what if this person and what if this scenario were to happen? As if like the thief on the cross. Yes, the thief on the cross, or this person who's on their deathbed and can't. These very rare scenarios, where we would probably say, uh, God gets to decide on that and he knows the hearts and the minds of people far sure. better than we do but this is the normative response that we see in the scriptures to the reality of who God is and what he's done in and through Jesus and, and this is one of the key texts for that yes yeah. oh, another exception that's rarely mentioned is yeah but what if you have 3,000 people you have to baptize it's like oh there's a lot of baptismal pools yeah. on the south side yeah. of the temple steps but it's like we, we uh, arguing always from the exception ignores kind of the the weightiness of this passage right yeah and i think i think it's significant to think through the reason people don't like it from that is that they they say it's a work because it's an action that i do mm-hmm. and it's not anything i do that saves me it's what what god has done for me through christ but if you notice in here there's there's yes. two things that they actually do yes. um yeah. jesus peter says repent and we usually don't get it. There's usually, there's some who argue against that, but usually a lot of people don't argue against that. They go, no, that's something we do. And so that's an act. And then being baptized is also. And at the end, when you go down to the bottom, you'll see um, uh, in verse 43, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day the 3,000 people were added to them. And so uh, Luke doesn't come in and say, and so those that day... Peter says three things. He says, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Luke does not feel like he has to tell you. And so they all repented, and they all were baptized, and they all filled the Holy Spirit. He uses baptism as kind of a catch-all for these, these three things go together. And we don't believe that Peter is saying, and I don't know if any of the caricature is, baptism is a work salvation. And we don't believe that baptism is what saves you, just like we don't believe that repentance is what saves you, but Peter tells them to do that. Yeah. Just like we That's don't good. believe faith itself is what saves you. That's good. Jesus saves you. And yet this is the normative response that we see through Scripture as what I do when I realize that he is the one who saves me. Yeah. This is how I respond in faith to him. Well, well and even looking great. at the, the two things there, repent and be baptized. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not passive. repent and do the work of baptism yourself. Yeah. It, it literally is, if anything, the repentance is, is more proactive yeah. and the baptism is more passive. Yeah. yeah. So it, when you look at it in, in terms of the idea of it being a work, yeah. it, it really is, is uh, it's, it's not only a caricature of what we believe within our tradition, it's not even... It's not even what the text is insinuating. Yeah. Well, it's one of the dangers that, I mean, you're talking to people who highly value theology, have spent lots of dollars and time (laughs) to practice and understand theology and to teach theology. It is one of the dangers of prioritizing a theological system over letting the text drive how you 
mm-hmm. put together the truths mm-hmm. of who right. God is and what he's done. Mm-hmm. And so when you're trying to do what Drew says and protect an idea, which is true, there's some true ideas. Like faith is a very integral, important, foundational element of how we respond to who God is and what he's done. Mm-hmm. And then you uh, oppose that to something else that is in the scriptures like repentance or baptism you're creating a false dichotomy yep. <laughs> and there's a danger there because you feel like you have to protect this ideology your your theology sure. and, you, and you feel like you're having to protecting it's those wicked people who would do something as foolish as create a new works-based salvation when that's not actually what's happening that's you're probably creating a straw man there's probably not a lot of people that are actually doing what you're saying be really careful when reading a text to have a list of things, like an extensive list of things that the text cannot mean. I think we all have to have some of those. Like I believe that God cannot lie or God will not be unfaithful or, or unjust or not good, right? So that's that, that's a list that I have. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying don't have a list, but be really, really careful what is on that list because I, I, know, uh, I know that I can do that and I think people do that. They have this, well, it can't mean that. And I want to say, well, whoa, 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 wait a second here. Like, you might not want to have that as one of the, it can't mean, because it could mean. Yeah. <laughs> and so have a short list or at least a, a very well thought out what a text cannot mean. Um, because truly, a text can't mean everything. It has to mean something in particular. So you want to have guardrails when you're studying, and you want to have a, a deeper understanding. So going back to what you were describing, Justin, about the concerns of having a, a system that is going to constrain you. We all have them. Mm-hmm. Be careful with them or be able to to know even some of the limits of your own system. And so I can't not have a system, but I also need to make sure that by the yeah. time we're done, I'm even surrounding myself with other godly women and men who are saying, Hey Jim, I, I don't think you're I don't think you have a possibility that the text is giving you. And you need to you need to dial that back. You need to kind of lower that guardrail because I don't think you're responding to what a more natural or a more biblical uh, meaning of that text could possibly mean. Yeah. And th- that's what we're, that's what we want. And I think that that's why I even like that we have a kind of a plurality of voices here. Interpretation within a community is far better than interpretation on one's own or sure. within an echo chamber of all the same sources, always saying all the same things. I think something I'd like to mention on this text, you know, I, I brought up the question earlier, what's changed from crucify him to we crucified him? Um, obviously, they had seen and heard a lot of what Jesus did during his life, and many of them maybe even believed this was the guy. They may have had the thought before that this was the Messiah. Peter yeah. saying this at Pentecost may not have been the first time they had the thought, this guy is Messiah. They may have thought that, but then when they see him being captured by the Romans, not fighting back, they have now made a categorical change. Yeah. This is just another poser. Yeah. This is just another guy who is gathering a, a crowd and has no power. Yeah, he promised and couldn't deliver. He, he's failed. Yeah. He's another failed guy, and so, yeah, crucify him, whatever. I'm tired of this. Yeah. Um, that's I'm not but then a little thing thinking. called the resurrection happens. Then the resurrection <laughs> happens, and the yeah. news of this begins to spread predominantly with the disciples and who he yeah. appeared to, and now the message is being put out. And then the other big thing is the whole the Holy Spirit being poured out. So what yeah. caused this great ruckus was a group of Jesus followers speaking in languages that people yeah. could understand naturally, yeah. their common tongue, and and. And there was something unique to that. There was yeah. a unique outpouring yeah. of the Holy Spirit in which languages that 
should not be necessarily heard or uttered in that way were. And that created a new, all of that combined created this perfect storm for 3,000 people to be convinced. Yeah. It wasn't like they were working from a zero zero sum knowledge. Yeah. Like they had thoughts and feelings prior to this and all of this connected into a perfect opportunity for many of them to put their faith in Jesus that yeah. he really was who they may have thought he was before. And it's also important to, when you go back and read Peter's sermon to you can see that it's very evident he is speaking to an audience that has a very um, healthy and robust understanding of the Old Testament story. Mm -hmm. And so they have like this context that oftentimes we no longer have in our evangelism, this deep familiarity with the the story of Israel and God's work in and through that people. And their story. Like this yeah, is their family exactly. heritage. Look at verse look at verse. I can't I can't help but just think about the beauty of uh, thirty-nine. Um so you have the the proclamation of the gospel and the re Justin's described the redirection of their thinking. Oh, he was the Messiah. The conviction, Drew described the conviction of guilt. And Peter responds that all of this is a promise. Of inclusion, right? That's what Peter says. This is a promise of inclusion for you. And uh, Luke describes the far-reaching effects that the the, the 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 second gospel, right? So uh, Luke part two, the book of Acts is going to uh, bring about that this is a promise. It's not just about, hey, you guys crucified the Messiah, but God will forgive you. No, this was all orchestrated under God's plan. This is a promise. And I think sometimes we forget the beauty of that beginning for this promise of of inclusion, this promise of being joined to God uh, through the blood of Christ that Paul describes in Ephesians, end of two, um, is a, it's, it's really is a gift. And so to move from the conviction of the heart to a promise is, is a, 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 in my mind, a number of steps. Peter gets there quickly. <laughs> yeah. Good. Awesome. Okay. Let's grab, we probably have time to do one more, unless you guys fly through this. Okay, go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Oh. The first 16 verses. Okay. I see what you're doing with this. I think. I don't. <laughs> okay, so Ezekiel 1, this is interesting. And, and I, in part, I want to talk about it in reference to another passage where Ezekiel is... He gets a he has a vision of the glory of the Lord. Yep. An overwhelming like if you want to read some of the most bizarre sci-fi, the first half of Ezekiel is the best place to go start. But Ezekiel engages with God in this this glorious vision. And just first thoughts because I my mind was immediately drawn back to Moses's encounter with God where um He's, he wants to see the Lord's glory, and he doesn't necessarily get to see it in the sense that Ezekiel does here. Mm -hmm. And so um, just, I'm, I'm not saying that we have time to, to talk about everything here, but I just thought it was very interesting how, how radically different this vision is from what, um, what Moses experienced on Sinai, where, if you recall, he asked to see the Lord's face, and he could only see his back. So, kind of first thoughts whenever you, you glance through Ezekiel 1. Do we need to read it? Or, or I mean, it's a longer text. There's a lot here. I don't know if... Yeah. Um, let me read. 
Let me read the 4 through 12, and that should probably get us oriented rather well. So the, the chapter begins with kind of some, some it, it dates it and puts it within the, the rule of King Jehoiakim. Um, so this is, this is the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I looked and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam of amber. The likeness of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They looked something like a human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings on their four sides. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. Their faces looked something like the face of a human, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, the face of an eagle. That is what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward. Each had two wings touching that of another and two wings covering its body. Each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went without turning as they moved. Um, well, I'll, I'll read the next two verses too. The likeness of the living creatures was like the appearance of blazing coals of fire or like torches. Fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright with lightning coming out of it. The creatures were darting back and forth like flashes of lightning. So, um, and further down in the chapter, the last, you know, five, six verses, you get the voice speaking through all these things. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of um, throw this text in there and, and get initial thoughts as to just how, if I'm reading through my, my chronological Bible say and I come to this passage, what, what interpretive tools am I supposed to employ as I start reading through this wild scene? So there's a couple of ways. It's, it's funny you went in the direction, interesting that you went in the direction that you did, um, because you took the concept of encounter God, see God, which is, a, which is a lens to look through. I looked at it kind of more in the literary sense, the meaning apocalyptic sense. Well, no, not well. It is. It ends up being somewhat apocalyptic, but it's so Ezekiel one mirrors Isaiah six and Revelation four in a in a literary sense, meaning you that, see that you see God, yeah. that, that a prophet, somewhat in turmoil, exile, which would be Ezekiel, John, not necessarily Isaiah, um, all have encounters with with the living God and right. throne room scenes. Right. So Isaiah six has a very similar, I see the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and it, it, it has some characteristics of it. Um, I think John in Revelation 4 sees almost a, uh, the Lord reveals to him a compilation, a bringing together yeah. of the Isaiah 6 in the, in the Ezekiel 1 text. I guess what I'm trying to get at is why are those visionary scenes yeah. yep. so radically different than Moses yeah. in, on yeah. Sinai? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, and I, maybe no, that's I not need, a good I need, answer. I need, no, but I need to think about it. I mean, that's a great question. Um, the, the first thing I think about looking at, again, the Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, John 4, um, is that it appears to be a common denominator is Isaiah is about to be commissioned to go and to preach. Ezekiel is about to be commissioned to go and preach. And John is about to be commissioned to go and preach. And pre when I say preach, mm -hmm. to reveal a message from the Lord. 
And so you have the um, enabling, the strengthening, and the uh, the commissioning almost. The establishment of the source of the, the message too. Yeah, yeah. And so you 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 definitely have that picture. And, and, and that might even be what's going on in the um, uh, in the Exodus material where God hides hmm. him and and reveals himself. So, you know, you definitely have, you know, it's not it's not Exodus three commissioning, which is the, the the original encounter that Moses has with the Lord. So the story that you're relating to, and then the chapter right now, I don't know what it is. Um, what's the chapter where he sees God, wants to see God, and God says, "You cannot, but I will hide you in the cleft." That's do you remember that? It- might be Justin's it's late twenties or early thirties because the golden calf's thirty two. Yeah, so it's somewhere in there. But you know, so you you definitely have that aspect within it um, that there is this commissioning of all four of them. But you definitely see it in a little bit in a little bit of turmoil, right? So Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John have the people of God either in exile and therefore oppressed, or even somewhat even going into or experiencing God's judgment for their rebellion. Isaiah's starts with in the year that King Uzziah died. And so the idea of a really good, long established king just passed away. And so there's, there's a little bit of turmoil and things are up in the mm-hmm. air at that, yeah. that moment. So, and I, I love the idea that, um, I, I don't know. I, I love these kinds of texts during election years, mm-hmm. um, because it's good to be reminded that there are those things that change, i.e. who is in Washington and then there's the one universal, yeah, which is who is on who is on the throne. And when when the throne is firmly established in our theology and in our um, in our own heart mind, when we are settled in ourselves at the the dominion and the sovereignty of God, um, then we can go alongside Daniel, right, apocalyptic, um, and recognize that the Lord gives the kingdoms of the earth to whomever He should choose, but He is still the one reigning. So, right. what's the text, Justin? Uh, Exodus 33, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and oh, I'll proclaim the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious or compassion, who I'll have compassion. You cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. Here is a place near me. You stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Yeah. And it's and that's kind of where I my mind initially went with the tension of humans cannot see me and live, yeah. and yet... Humans see at least these this representation of God sure. in some sense. Yeah, I'll I'll throw something out and then I'll, add, I'll turn over to you guys with some questions. But I do think it's interesting, and, and you talk about if you read further in towards the end of the chapter, you get to the throne of God and all that stuff. But one of the things that strikes me in this text is how many times the word like or likeness comes up. Yeah, um, you know, which which conveys to me a little bit of. Ezekiel's loss to be able to describe what he's seen. He yeah, he's keeps saying for it's, words. it's a gleam like amber, and it's it's kind of like a torch, um, and there there's kind of like this wheel that's that's moving, but it's not like rotating. And there's the likeness of which is very human, Revelation four. Yeah, which yeah. is yeah the same thing. Eyes like fire, all these things, and so they can they can. There's a lot of likeness stuff, and and what one of the things we see is in in all the encounters with God, we see a failure of human language to fully be able to describe. Yeah. All we can yeah. do is get kind of close yeah. whenever there's an encounter there. And so I always think that that's fascinating, seeing how many times you see um, it was like or the appearance of or that kind of thing in these passages. But you guys, uh, I think all three of you guys are better with apocalyptic literature than I am. Uh, like, what do what do we do with like the four living creatures? What's the significance of those things in this passage? 
so we see a couple of different types of things. We have we have two types of creatures that are similar. So we have good creatures, and then there seems to be creatures that represent bad or evil um, in different periods, whether that be in the Isaiah material, the Daniel material, the Revelation material. Um, a lot of times these strange beasts either represent beings that are there servicing, worshiping God, or th- some type of beast opposing God. Those are, those are kind of the categories. Um, and we're opened up to the realm that there are created things that we do not interact with in our, create, in our uh, physical universe. Um, honestly, kind of open, we talked about this Sunday. These are, um, the veil is stripped back and we're seeing into another realm that exists just as much as our physical world exists that we just don't interact with in a no conscious way. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing beasts that have been created by God that have either serviced God or have rebelled against God. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what mm-hmm. we see. And so they seem strange to us because these writers are trying to piece together what they kind of look like. And there's maybe even similar-ish representations of them in our physical created order, but there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. like you've mentioned. Um, but I think they're trying to represent a few things. They're trying to represent uh, the forces of God, those forces beings against God. Sometimes those manifest themselves in some type of kingdom, as we see in Daniel and in Revelation. But I, th- I think specifically in those texts, what's trying to be communicated there is it really doesn't matter what name is on attached to that, whether it's Rome, whether it's Babylon. Those are temporary manifestations right. of this far greater uh, cosmic evil that exists that is going to be conquered that still sits under the power of God. I think mm-hmm. that's probably what's trying to be communicated. The reality of who God is, the reality of the evil that exists, the power that he has over that, that manifests itself where you're in Babylon or you're under Roman rule, but that's temporary. I'm probably most comfortable with the Revelation 4 material um, and, and, and least with Ezekiel 1, so you picked the <laughs> toughest one for me. Um, I would go uh, most comfortable Revelation 4, then Isaiah 6, and lastly Ezekiel 1. It is the exact same, though, lists of beings. So ox, man, lion, mm-hmm. eagle mm-hmm. in Rev 4 and uh, Ezekiel 1. Mm-hmm. And I think the Revelation 4 there is kind of representing the totality of creation. Um, and so it, it's not quite as confusing in Revelation 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's yeah. in, in, as compared to Ezekiel 1. So and the, the worship of them, so to use the language that is being spoken around the throne to help interpret what's being done, it is the worship of God day and night. They never stop saying these, these living creatures from the four, from the totality, so the, the, the four corners of the earth, from the four winds of the world. So that idea is the totality of it. Mm-hmm. And so alongside of what Justin said in terms of just the complexity of the depth of the created order of things, it is the, the, the creator of all being worshipped by all. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John need to know that when in Jerusalem or in Babylon there is not the worship of God, but there is the worship of other things, that can I peel back a layer that you cannot see so that you might know the reality that is uh, kind of beyond your recognition. Going back to what Justin was describing, that is beyond your physical eyes and even beyond your spiritual sensitivities. 
mm. but mm. is but revelation, an uncovering or I love to remind people that the revelation is an uncovering or an unhiding of a reality, not yeah. a hiding of it. It's an uncovering of it, yeah. and that's what that's what's happening yeah. here in Ezekiel and also in Isaiah and also in Revelation. Okay, um, so then I'm gonna. Go ahead. Can I take a little? I'm just going to take a kind of a stab at, at even an idea is if if this is the totality of creation, I'm guessing eagle being sky and then you have ox being like land yep. animals and then uh, lion being like predatory kind of on top of the food chain kind yep. of and then human beings. Um, if Revelation 4, the theme is worship, they're all bowing down and worshiping. You know, the thing that I note with this is the uh, I think 12 highlights it a lot. Each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went without turning as they moved. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder then if the idea is, if in Revelation 4 it's the totality of creation and worship to God, if it, if this is the totality of creation under God's control, yeah. which would be a theme in Ezekiel, is, yeah. is as as you, it's it opens up with saying that Ezekiel is sitting in exile in Babylon with the rest of the exiles. And so questioning what happened here and is this, yep. did God lose control? here that we ended up getting conquered but it's so it's fascinating that it starts with this idea of no everything is under God's control yeah so. and that goes right into what I wanted to say is that this is an example of an intertextual canonical reading yeah um, yep. It, yep. the reason why revelation is more of an explanation than it is uh, like an obscuring text is because it comes at the end it has behind it this entire database of what images do and mean. And it depends very heavily on Daniel, on Ezekiel, on Isaiah to some extent, and then on the, the forgotten apocalyptic material of Zechariah, actually quite a bit. And when you go and you see what, what, are, what symbols are being employed and how are they being used and, and to what do they reference, all of that data is imported into Revelation. So when you see symbols in Revelation, more often than not, they will have a previous counterpart that John is leveraging, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love you know if you keep going into Ezekiel two, um, as this, this is Ezekiel two two. So I'm gonna he says in what two one I'm gonna speak to you and then verse two, as he spoke to me the spirit entered me, set me on my feet and I listened to the one who was speaking to me and he said to me son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to the rebellious pagans who have rebelled against me the Israelites and to their uh, and their ancestors have transgressed against me to this day, and then he begins to describe. So Isaiah and Ezekiel are. Um, are going to be explanations, warnings, and corrections to a rebellious Israel. John's fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. John is, um, I'm going to give you hope and and promise. I'm going to give. When he you, says John, he means Revelation. Yeah, yeah. Revelation. Yeah, okay. it's so it, it is kind of interesting. There is there is some development. It is it is not a word of warning from the throne. It is actually a word of comfort to the throne about a judgment that's going to be coming not on them unlike Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1, but is going to be coming on their enemies, yeah. Revelation 4. Something that I think people have a hard time with in this type of literature, genre, is, yeah, but what is this? What is the bro- polished bronze? What does it represent? And, and what is this creature? <laughs> and what is the what is the ox? What is the eagle? What is the... Yeah. So, I, Jim, I think you teach on this really well. Help people who get really wrapped up in these, st- and rightfully trying to understand these, mm-hmm. like doing their best to understand these, sure. but cannot get past 
the difficulty of some of the words or phrases that are being used. How do you help them to define them or weigh them? How do you teach people to rightly interpret the words or phrases or take a step back and read these overall? It, it, I love the idea, Dr. Lowry, um, very influential man in my life, help me see that when studying the Bible, you need to move in and out look at this particulars, but then step back and look at the, at the bigger picture, right? So that's one of the reasons why, um, in terms of looking at the whole Bible, we want to look at the, the meta-narrative. So the creation, fall, uh, redemption, and restoration of Israel or of, of the people of God. So that's the big picture. But in something like this, to be able to look in at it, what is it? And it's this creature. Then take a, a bit of a step back. And I think the concern that I have with this particular concept that you've developed, Ryan, the um, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, looking at the three of them together, if you fail to see <laughs> that these are throne room scenes, that there is one seated on the throne, if you fail to recognize, like Drew is describing, there is a an inability for language to, if you fail that by trying to figure out what the polished bronze is or what the eyes moving back and forth are or what the wings symbolize, you failed to recognize the, the bigger picture of it, which is the magnitude and the greatness and the sovereignty of God. So how does the one on the throne fit into the Isaiah narrative, the Ezekiel narrative, and the, and the Revelation? Yeah. How does that happen? Um, and it's a little bit like looking at this stage. What do those doors represent? What, I don't even know what you mean. What do you mean, what does the door represent? Yeah. The door's part of the set. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. There's Don't a, lose the force there is, for the there's trees. part where the Don't, door is just yeah. a door. <laughs> yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. There's a there's a a, a form of quotation um, called metalepsis, where uh, yeah. oftentimes yeah. you'll see in the New Testament they they will quote a single line from some passage in the Old Testament, and they're not wanting you to equate one to one. What I'm saying is what that line is saying. They're saying. What I'm saying connects to the whole Totality. of what that passage meant yeah. back yeah. there, yeah. and so it's a, it's kind of like um, me wanting to talk about um, issues of slavery, and I say you guys know like four score and seven years ago. Like I'm not talking about the time; I'm directing you to an entire speech, yeah. and we intuit that. But when we come to this to this kind of literature, sometimes we fail to remember that a small quotation from, say, Isaiah 53 is likely referencing the totality of that narrative that stretches from the end of 52 mm -hmm. to the middle of 53. And yeah. it, the danger, like going to the next step, it leads people away from what it's trying to do into worship God and to be able to see past what is immediately in front of you in your circumstances and trust the ultimate reality to tell me, are those locust helicopters? And is the <laughs> mark of the beast that ship they're trying to put in my yeah. arm so that I can yeah. pay for my sandwiches quicker? You know, yeah. so that that's the danger. Rather than trying to hear the message John, that God has given to John for the churches, for the church, we get lost in some of these things that were never intended to be interpreted in that way. Yeah. This was fun. I enjoyed this. I wish we could do another one, but we're at 43 minutes. So um, hopefully we'll we'll have occasions to do this. I, I think we do this again. Yep. I think so, too. So um, yeah, I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you would like to talk any further about apocalyptic literature or <laughs> repenting and being baptized, we would love to have that conversation. And as much as I love Revelation, I, I like the other one even more. Yep.
So um, send any feedback or, or thoughts that you have to Steve at sunnybrookcc.org or comment on this if you're on Facebook. And uh, we'll catch you next time.